0: Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans and thus America itself. Join our host, Chris Stevenson, for Season 2 of our podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens grappling with complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released every Monday on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org under the sign-up tab.
1: Food sustains physical life, and as such, it is of critical importance to each of us. Some in the country have an abundance. Hunger or food insecurity gnaws at others, in which group we find ourselves determines much of our current existence. What we eat also touches on other aspects of our lives besides need, celebrations, emotional comfort, health, family traditions, and connections or breaking bread with others, For the purposes of this podcast series, we are interested in uncovering and understanding the connections between religion and food in the United States. What are they? What do they mean? And how significant are they? To do a deep dive into just one aspect of this fascinating and meaningful subject, we have as our guest Derek Hicks, Associate Professor of Religion and Culture at Wake Forest University's Divinity School. Hicks teaches and researches broadly in the areas of African American religion, religion in North America, race, the body, religion and food ways, theory and method in the study of religion, black and womanist theologies and cultural studies. Dr. Hicks is the author of the book Reclaiming Spirit in the Black Faith Tradition and is currently working on a second monograph entitled Feeding Flesh and Spirit, Religion, Food, and the Saga of Race in Black America. He also contributed chapters for the book Blacks and Whites in Christian America, How Racial Discrimination Shapes Religious Convictions. For our discussion today, we are looking at his chapter, Gumbo and the Complex Brew of Black Religion, from the book Religion, Food, and Eating in North America, edited by Benjamin Zeller, Marie Dallum, Reed Nelson, and Nora Rubel. I am confident that today's podcast will help us better understand what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, and we trust that as a result, listeners will see how indispensable the idea of religious freedom as a governing principle is to the United States and its ability to fulfill its purposes in the world. We encourage our listeners to visit storyofamericanreligion.org and register for future podcast notifications under the sign up tab. Derek, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: It's wonderful to be here. Thank you.
1: First, and I think your answer here will help our listeners frame the discussion that we're going to have. Why and how did you develop a scholarly interest in the intersection of food and religion?
2: (laughs) It's a great question. And one, I I will say that I uh, tripped into it and I was Uh, pushed along further into it by one of the uh, editors you uh, mentioned of the book, uh, Religion, Food and Eating in North America. And that was uh, the one, uh, Nora Rubel, who uh, in a conversation said, you know, I noticed that you talk about uh, black people as a gumbo people. I had given a lecture and she saw it on my CV. And she said, could you say more about that? And I, I talked about the way I theorized Uh, the gumbo as a metaphor for understanding the complexities of Black life, but also um, understanding a better way to think about diversity within theological education. I think that's what that lecture did uh, from many years ago. And she said, well, have you thought more substantively about how that metaphor relates to food culture in African-American life. And I said, in fact, you know, I'm I'm starting to develop ideas about that. So that's how it came about. Um, And as I was thinking about it, I started thinking about the ways in which um, my studies in Black religion and coming of age in a house uh, uh, led by my Louisiana grandmother, uh, just how much food intersected with the spirit in my house, how food intersected with how she articulated values of being Black, coming of age in the Jim Crow South, Uh, her migration narrative, there was always food and faith. Uh, And then on our front porch, when she would feed individuals, literally feed individuals her gumbo, uh, every late December, early January on the front porch, uh, she would tell stories of her faith and how uh, her faith in God had brought her and her family through so much as they would be slurping on gumbo and and cracking crab legs. And so I, I realized the extent to which I had been tutored, right, in both of these seemingly uh, oddly paired cultural productions. And when I started sitting down, putting pen to paper or, or stroking uh, uh, the keys on the laptop for that chapter, I realized that there was a convergence here between food waste studies and religious studies that I wanted to explore a little bit deeper. And ultimately that has become a, a fuller monograph that I'm uh, drawing to a close on.
1: Okay. Well, thank you for that Uh that genesis of, of, of your chapter and now your book. It's very um, helpful sort of to, to understand the, the author's background there. Uh, and I think maybe the following, what I picked out of your chapter, might shed some light. Maybe you can talk to it. You wrote this at the beginning of your chapter, quote, Refusing my native Louisiana and grandmother's New, Year Day, New Year's Day gumbo and black-eyed peas or even her sweet potato pie prompted many to question my blackness, close quote. What did you mean there? Tell us that story.
2: (laughs) Well, um, uh, I grew up in her name is Sadie Lucille Dean. I grew up in, and she's still living in that house in Los Angeles, South central Los Angeles Watts. Uh, and she's 92 years old and still fusses at me on the phone. I grew up in a house where, uh, Sadie cooked and, and anybody who knows a, Southern grandmother, black grandmothers cooking knows that when they cook, they go all in. Um, But I didn't grow up liking a lot of the things that I like now. So I did not have a taste for uh, uh, black eyed peas or greens for that matter, collards or mustards or turnips. Uh, I did not have a taste for okra. uh, And my grandmother did an okra based roux in her gumbo. Uh, And while I kind of liked gumbo for for, uh, some of its aspects, I did not like shrimp and I did not like crab, and therefore I did not eat much gumbo um, as well. So it's kind of ironic, right, that I would end up kind of not only deeply engaging food, um, but uh, I would have my own cultivate my own love for sharing it and and cooking it. Now, to the point about uh, my Blackness being questioned, uh, culturally within the uh african-american tradition if it, we we do this thing called uh what we would call it checking your black card if if i were to uh say who makes the best sweet potato pie in your family and and you respond to me and say i don't even like sweet potato pie you know that makes a lot of black people gasp and swoon how, how could you not like sweet potato pie because all black folks supposed to like sweet potato pie. And I grew up not liking it, nor do I like it now. So somebody out there listening to this is pulling my black card. Uh, or if, you know, if, if someone makes a reference to uh, uh, any uh, cultural production in black life that, that folks are supposed to know, it could come from a television show like Martin or making reference to a hip hop lyric uh, in front of another person. And if they don't know it, you say, I, you know, I got to question whether or not you're legitimately black. So okay. it's, it's a kind of way that we poke fun at each other uh, to legitimate our blackness.
1: OK, thank you. What, what do you, you mentioned this before. You ha- had been calling uh, black people gumbo people, and that is part of mm-hmm. your title, Gumbo and the Complex Brew of Black Religion. Can you give us a quick description of, of that title, why you chose it and what you mean by the black people being a gumbo people? Maybe that would also Certainly. help us.
2: Yeah. So, so the full title. Uh, let me make sure I did. Um, I'm looking at the book as yes, yes, yes. The full title is the "An Unusual Feast," and the subtitle mm. is "Gumbo and the Complex Brew Black Religion." Thank you. Right. Black religion. And so, what I'm getting at there is uh, actually that's that's an that's a quote from someone uh, uh, back in the 1800s or so who observed the uh, a fee, uh, the coming together, the fellowship around uh, the table of black people that he entitled an unusual feast. And uh, for him, it, it, you know, it was different. It was something, it was complex, it was vibrant. Uh, it, was, it was othered, it was foreign to him in his observance. And when I think about gumbo at its best, that is what it is, it is complex. It is introducing different elements that uh, coalesce in this uh, soup, but not quite soup, stew, but not quite stew like dish where you can pick out each of those elements individually and yet they co-mingle in one as one uh, pot of something that when you taste it, you know distinctively it is gumbo and yet when you t- taste each element, you can pick that out as well. And so, uh, and, and when we think about the construction of gumbo, we think about, uh, you know, the the vegetables, the meats, and then this thing called the roux, where you have to mix it and, and the roux becomes uh, almost the soul of the pot of gumbo as you create it. And so when I think about the complex construction of, gumbo and think about the beauty of it as uh, all of these vibrant, elements that come together my grandmother would tell stories of, of of her grandmother on the plantation where gumbo consisted of whatever anyone from around a you know square mile or around or, or someone on the different families on the plantation would have and bring together and one person would put it all in the pot and 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 would cook it up and and brew it for the entire community and so it's this complex food Complex dish, shall we say, that brings all of these wonderful ingredients together, uh, and 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 the beauty of it is, is its complexity. And so, when I think about Black life in its totality, when I think about Black religion as a cultural production and and cultural form within the context of larger context of African American life, I think. When I think of it at its best, I think of its complexity.
1: Okay. All right. Fair enough. Uh, Moving on here. In the section about the social and cultural structures of eating and preparing foods within the black community, you write that, quote, the uniqueness of the convergence of eating and religion in the process of forging community and forming collective identity in African-American life gives rise to a distinct cuisine and religiosity, both aimed at mending a wounded community, close quote. Would you elaborate a bit on that, Derek?
2: Sure, sure. And and that quote becomes really the stuff of the book that I'm writing now. What I'm saying there is, uh, on some level, when I think about the construction of the Black faith tradition, I think about it within the context of enslavement and how what we find in that space and that experience are what I call origins of improvisation that we find within the context of of, uh, uh, the kind of blossoming of the black faith tradition as folks were trying to make ways out of no way as we call it or trying to make sense of their absurd uh, living conditions as folks who were in bondage. What I've realized is on, on on a similar level, uh, African-Americans were constructing a cuisine that they themselves could utilize for their own sustenance and nourishment um, there on plantations. And so uh, in that, in the first chapter of the book, for example, I call it the Bible and the Pig head, origins of improvisation in the construction of black religion and black food. What I'm saying is um, instead of thinking about Black people as just making do with the scraps that they would receive, um, either it being a, a an interpretation of the Bible that said that you were endowed by God to be enslaved, or whether they received uh, the less choice cuts of the pig. They did more than make do, and I, and I have to give credit to uh, one of my dear colleagues, friends, and mentors, Psyche Williams Forson, who really changed my thinking around this idea of making do and recasting this idea in terms of brilliance of improvisation within uh, the Black faith and Black culinary traditions. And so what I'm saying there is uh, what they're ultimately getting at is creating something that not just literally fed their material flesh, but fed their souls and allowed them to articulate their meanings and humanities and form their identities through the construction of a religious life and a culinary culture.
1: Okay. Now, related to that is another question I want to ask. Um, You later wrote in the book, quote, Black families will often engage in heated debates about the legitimacy of sacred culinary dishes like sweet potato pie greens, collard or mustard, macaroni and cheese, or gumbo, close quote. Why, why is that? Why are those arguments there?
2: Right. Uh, those tend to be some of the most fun arguments. and And, you know, we could put air quotes on arguments, right? But most fun engagements around black tables at Thanksgiving, Christmas, and the like, when the family comes together. But I think there's something um, even deeper um, in in this process and in this way of thinking about uh, those those debates. In the second chapter of the book, I call it, um, I I, I talk about the ways in which uh, uh, African Americans have performed uh, their customs of religion and culinary cultures. And I, I make the argument that they're performing them with the express purpose of making the wounded flesh whole, right? So they're they're responding to the absurd, they're dealing with the struggles of degradation and through food and through religion, they're able to make themselves whole. But part of that process is the performance of these traditions, whether that performance is the performance that they drew from or learned in the South and carried with them to the West or to the North. Uh, where they would have to reperform those things in these new, you know, what some would consider Canaan lands of migration. And those migration dynamics bring with them these debates over legitimacy in terms of the way folks worship and the way folks cook. And so when you take someone out of, in, in the case of my family, you take my grandmother who, uh, for the first 20 or so years of her life, Uh, lived in the deep south of Louisiana and um, had to, as a young child, uh, help her grandmother, who was a domestic, um, cleaning uh, the homes of white people in their small town of Colfax, Louisiana. Uh, My grandmother, after school, would have to go help her grandmother uh, clean these homes and she had to honor the protocols and customs of the South in that day, which meant that she had to enter and exit the back doors and take her and make meals in the back porches of the homes that they would serve. And so my grandmother was was kind of groomed and conditioned in the South. And so when she would leave that space and go to her own home, there was a, 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 a way of doing things. There was a way of thinking about things, and faith and food were always there to help mitigate the struggles that, that they would have to endure uh, by way of discrimination and racism on the other side of the railroad tracks. And so as she grew and she migrated to the West, she carried with her those ways of doing those those traditions. Um, but Uh, as my advisor, Anthony Penn, would always say, cultural memory is fragile. And so when you carry those cultural memories from the place where they were born to these new places in the North and the South, the argument I'm making is that uh, sometimes there's some cultural slippage. And then uh, Black people love to engage in uh, these debates as to whether or not you've slipped too much culturally, and maybe you're not authentically making the uh, greens like you think you are. And and so it becomes a fun way of engaging what we might say the real is.
1: Okay. That's very, um, very beautifully put, Derek. Thank you for that explanation. Also in the same section, you write, quote, contemporary struggles with cultural contact in Black food life are connected to foodstuff rationing practices of planters and slaveholders who gave slaves what they considered the less desirable cuts of meat, close quote. Tell us more about this. You mentioned it briefly a few minutes ago, but can you paint the picture here of of, uh, of that part of Black food and its origins? Yeah.
2: So, you know, one of the most fascinating things that I uh, have been running across in my research, especially for that first chapter, is... Uh, the extent to which food allowed for enslaved people to actually lay claim to aspects of agency I had not known before that. Um, So there are these examples, for example, of uh, uh, enslaved people who worked uh, as required uh, for plantation life, but then also um, were able to take a small plot of land and grow their own gardens. Some of them would even be able to sell their wares, their, their, what what they planted uh, at, uh, uh, you know, in town as it were, and uh, allow themselves certain uh, resources through the selling of of their own uh, vegetables or whatever they produced in the garden. And so there's something to be said about rethinking our understanding, uh, um, re-identifying our our minds around what black people were and were not able to do on plantations. It's not solely that they were bound to everything that the master uh, required of them, that in some instances, through their uh, productions of uh, culture, in this case, food productions, they were able to make certain demands Uh, that uh, manifested themselves in certain forms of agency. And so uh, I think about the example of the gardens, but also think about the examples of ration day. Uh, um, My research has has shown at different points where enslaved people would literally debate and and offer pushback to uh, the planters who would want to offer the ration for the the weekly ration on a particular day, let's just call it Monday, Uh, which was perhaps easier for the planter. Uh, And you have enslaved people pushing back and saying, no, we'd actually prefer our rations at the end of the week, why? Because what that afforded them was to have their more choice options available to them just after worship on Sunday. And so they, saw, they took very seriously this idea of having the best options to be associated with their worship of the God that they served. And so I think um, these become e- examples where even as they were offered, as I mentioned and as you uh, quoted, less choice options or less choice cuts uh, of, of meat, they were able to, A, make demands— that afforded them more opportunity for agency and and pleasure uh, uh, within the larger framework of a really uh, 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 challenging situation and and deplorable situation of enslavement, but also it allowed them the space to create and to, uh, as I say, uh, utilize this kind of jazz like improvisational spirit that created not only a a cuisine but in the midst of that created a a religious culture uh where they could as uh uh tony morrison so eloquently um uh writes through the character uh the religious character baby sucks holy they created a space where they could love their flesh and love it hard and so i think that um aspect of the construction of of religion and food or culinary culture in black life is one that needs to be foregrounded even more
1: right so is it fair to say that uh, that that s- the enslaved found some agency in both their food and their religion and not in Absolutely. a lot of other places those were two primary places where they could express themselves create things
2: yeah, Fine sustenance. Uh, and, 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 and they weren't the soul to, right? They, uh, there were other modes of cultural production that, that um, Black people were involved in uh, uh, during the antebellum period. But um, those two modes, religion and food, um, became really kind of vibrant ways and to yeah. express a complex agency complex, uh, and to to um, kind of highlight a complex creativity um, that gave them, that not only empowered them but gave them voice, right? So when I think about black religion and, and black food, I also think about language, right? So they cultivated, as they were literally cultivating uh, these productions of culture, they were creating languages around these cultural uh, forms. And those languages in some ways become distinctive and they're associated with an oral tradition, which uh, has um, intimate connections with West African Yoruba-based or, or Orisha-based traditions as well. And so when you when you think about what is being transferred from person to person, from generation to generation. It's not necessarily transferred in the medium that we think of, you know, written down. Some of it was, but you're also talking about people who were largely barred from being able to learn to read and write in English. And 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 so uh, what you had was an oral tradition of folks who were uh, transferring this wealth of tradition and knowledge from person to person that still holds to this day and even with the fragility of cultural memory you still had rudiments of very important aspects of life transferred for generations and so mm-hmm. um that's kind of where i'm getting at this uh,
1: one of my last questions quotes uh, it- Quotes you writing about this oral tradition, and, and you say something like, uh, You noticed uh, almost no Black Baptist church without a ki- heavily used kitchen. And it's also, it would also be inappropriate for anyone to break out a cookbook because these recipes are orally transmitted. So, is that true? You saw heavily used kitchens, but n- no cookbooks. Yeah, that, yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah. So so two stories there. One, um, I, I went to a funeral of uh, a dear, dear friend of my, of my grandmother's uh, who had also migrated from the South. Uh, I think they had migrated from Alabama, there in Mississippi, uh, was a neighbor to my grandmother for 65 years. And at her funeral, uh, we celebrated. And before, as you were leaving the lengthy funeral on your way to uh, the burial site, to the cemetery, they gave you um, a a plate of food, actually a styrofoam uh, container of food. And in that styrofoam container was like a slice of ham, maybe a slice of turkey or or a a piece of chicken, uh, a, a little bit of fruit and maybe some potato salad. Now I was there with someone else who wasn't used to this practice and said, oh, this is how they're feeding us. I said, no, 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 no. This is just the get you by food. The repass will be when we come back to this place. And she was like, really? I said, oh yeah. So when we came back, it was an entire spread, right? And so you literally had devoted at least four hours of your day to the going home celebration, which is what we would uh, articulated in, in the Black Baptist Church, of this stalwart champion in our community. And part of that was not just saying goodbye and weeping, but also celebrating life, celebrating what God had done in and through that life, and then eating both on your way to bury uh, the, the flesh and uh or the mortal flesh as we would call it and uh feasting when you came back. And so uh there's a there's a there's a really important element that links worship, that links religious ideology that re- re- links religious expression in the black faith tradition to the consumption of food in the black faith tradition. And when you got back, yes, there were there you, you knew that nobody was in that kitchen cooking from a cookbook. They were cooking from memory, which gets me to my second story. The first time I ever made gumbo was in 2009. And I called uh, my uncle-in-law, who had learned to, to make gumbo in uh, New Orleans. And I said, hey, could you dictate for me Uh, could you send me your recipe? That's what I said. He said, ah, I don't have a recipe. He said, just dictate what I tell you. And so I I wrote down all these, this, this recipe, essentially, I concocted a recipe from what he said. I get off the phone, I make it, it was terrible. Uh, It it just, it just, it just didn't flow right. It, It wasn't right. And I was really strictly going by something that he was trying to articulate from his brain, but that brain, he was trying to connect to his heart simultaneously. And really when he makes the gumbo, it's all from his heart. So in 2010, happened to be in Houston, he calls me and says, hey, I'm about to make the gumbo. Do you wanna come by and observe? And I said, yes, go. There was nothing written. I just observed, I watched, I felt. I involved myself, I engaged, I inquired, I listened. And the next year, the gumbo was on a track for, for being much, much better because I, I, it's improved over the years. And that's all connected to this kind of lack of structure and order and really an embrace of the spirit of improvisation of the jazz-like expression and the oral tradition. Wow. Uh, even so much as when I told my grandmother years later, I was on the phone with my grandmother as I was mixing my roux, which is a long, arduous task. And my grandmother says, how much butter do you put in your roux? And I said, oh, I don't put butter in it. I only use uh, oil and, and um uh, And flour, and she said, "Oh, I put a little butter in my roux. You can't get it darker unless you put a little butter, but you you don't want to burn that butter." And that year, I added butter, not knowing that my grandmother used butter. And I said, "Why didn't you ever tell me?" She said, "Oh, I thought I thought I did. I thought you already knew." But that's the way the oral tradition works. It's beautiful in its uh, lack of convention.
1: Right. Right. Well, thank you for sharing all those those stories. Those are great. We are talking with Derek Hicks, Associate Professor of Religion and Culture at Wake Forest University's Divinity School, author of the chapter, An Unusual Feast, Gumbo and the Complex Brew of Black Religion, in the book, Religion, Food, and Eating in North America. If you have not done so yet, please go to storyofamericanreligion.org and navigate to the sign-up tab to register for future podcast notifications. Derek... In the section about religion, food, and identity in black life, you state that, quote, religious life of African Americans includes a functional element of empowerment, allowing them to critically rethink the social reality, and that food becomes one among other mediums through which this form of religious thought is expressed and promulgated. Can you paint us that picture a bit? I know you've touched on some of this already, but maybe uh, give us a little bit more.
2: Sure. Um, that statement really uh, draws from the theme of my first book, Reclaiming Spirit in the Black Faith Tradition. And in there, I'm, I'm making the case that when, when I think about the Black Faith Tradition, uh, uh, within the context of the Black church or even other forms of religiosity that African-Americans involve themselves in, I think of it in terms of a theme of reclamation. Now, I'm not talking about reclaiming something or, or you know, the taking back of something that was once yours, uh, that was you were dispossessed of it and you took it back. I'm, I'm utilizing another definition for reclamation, which is the extraction from waste and refuse or trash, something usable. And so when I think about the ways in which the Black faith tradition has manifested itself in its myriad of forms over hundreds of years within the um, African sojourn across the Atlantic into the Western world, notably within the context of what would become the United States, I think about uh, traditions of people who laid claim to suffering and yet through their religious life, uh, extracted from the waste and refuse of that racism, the waste and refuse of that suffering, the waste and refuse of uh, the of slavery in and of itself and found a way to articulate their own humanity through their faith tradition. Uh, and and it's a beautiful thing because, Um, I I tell my students often that you may have had someone who uh, converted to Christianity while enslaved in say, 1808, Uh, and that person when they converted may have been in their later 30s. Now, chances are he or she may not survive to see emancipation, they may not survive uh, uh, until uh, the final death knell of uh, enslavement at the end of the Civil War in 1865. They may not have seen the uh, or, or ever heard tale of a 13th amendment, let alone the 14th and 15th. And yet when they converted, uh, I, I've read uh, narratives and letters of, of uh, formerly enslaved people who converted to this faith and Uh, as opposed to to buying into the master's articulation of the faith, re-articulated that faith in a way that was more suitable for their experience, in a way that was more suitable for uh, their fullest expression of their own humanity. In other words, their their posture was changed by way of the faith that they themselves co-constructed. And so for me, that becomes the essence of this idea of reclamation. Uh, and that becomes the stuff of the way Black folk in the, in the face of the absurd could actually articulate their humanity, even as they were yet suffering.
1: Okay, beautiful. Thank you. Can you briefly talk to us uh, about this Tunis? In air quotes, that blacks feel, and I think this is from W. E. B. Du Bois, mm-hmm. um, and this is how it's described or or just, uh, defined. Quote: "An American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body." Close quote. Yeah. H- and how how is this manifested in blacks' food ways at the present time, or or through yeah. history?
2: Yeah, connect us, connect uh,
1: those two things.
2: Uh, du Bois ends that uh, quote by saying, whose dogged strength alone will not be torn asunder. And I think that uh, when we think about that tunis within the context of black the Black faith tradition and the context of Black food culture, um, there are two cultural productions that are always at odds with someone or some, uh, or, or some, either some community or some individual. Um, both of those cultural productions have been othered by those from outside of those communities. And so in some way, Black people have had to, you know, as Du Bois describes it, this embody this, this tunis at one sense, uh, the African and in another sense, the American who is trying to, construct for his or her own self an identity that allows them to lay claim to their full humanity while at the same time allows them to be accepted by the larger community that sees them as something more or less human. And so that Tunis is ever present um, it is present in, in the debates uh, where Black people are debating authenticity, as I've already talked about. Uh, it, is, it, is, um, it is present in the debates about worship styles, uh, whether uh, the, the worship is, is too oral or uh, too, uh, has too much robustness. Uh, versus uh, a worship style that uh, is is more quiet and subdued, right? Uh, There are all of these ways in which the debate about legitimacy around Black life is tied to this kind of two-ness that one ever feels. And I think that while those debates have been challenging for many African-Americans throughout the centuries, Uh, uh, what that also uncovers for us is an understanding that black life is never understood in terms of it being a monolith. It's it's not this sole way of being that in as much as you can have so many beautiful shades of black flesh, uh, you can have so many uh, beautiful ways of articulating um, black cultural productions of religion and food. And so that 2 is ever there because you're you're trying to fight for identity and acceptance simultaneously, but you can't ever get away from the root of who you are.
1: Somewhere in the book, and I thought I had a question, or in the chapter, I thought I had a question about this, but I don't see it, um, and we're coming to a close. You mentioned... Uh, that these are always in conflict, right, with, with some other community or some other person. And I remember reading about some white criticism of black food for its unhealthiness, let's say fried chicken. C- can you, and, and I don't, I have not constructed this question very well, I can't find it, but, but it, because when you said that I thought of this, can you talk to us about some of these conflicts, perhaps it's the unhealthiness conflict, or is that what you're talking about? Is that an example of what you're talking about, Derek?
2: Indeed, right? So there's this, um, you know, I I call this uh, uh, in in one of my chapters, I talk about how uh, black culture can at once be detestable and a delicacy. And uh, on some level, what you end up with is kind of black cultural uh, productions at once being viewed as so odd and othering uh, and off-putting and distasteful that they become critiqued by white culture uh, for it either being backward or savage uh, in terms of the religious expression and unhealthy and and who would eat such a thing in terms of the culinary tradition uh, and and then I think about an experience of going to a wine bar, uh, which was uh, pretty close to uh, uh, the campus of, of Rice University uh, when I was a graduate student there. And um, what when you went to this wine bar, it, it also sold uh, kind of small meals, tapas kind of style meals. Uh, and one of the most um, uh, uh, popular things that people ordered was a soul food dish. And I can't remember if it was like ham hocks or, 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 or uh, oxtails. I think it was oxtails. And I, I, was, I marveled at the fact that I could be in this wine bar at any given night and a, a table full of white folks would be eating these oxtails and the way they presented them on the plate was like a delicacy. And it was almost like their posture to eating these octa- oxtails was as though it was a delicacy. And yet that same um, um, uh, dish, that same food by someone throughout the centuries was also considered detestable um, and and you know questioned black folks in terms of why they would even eat it. And so I think, again, you have this, Duality within the culture that Black folks have had to take on and deal with uh, on a daily basis, and and it's you know what's most interesting about this is it's an experience that is germane or at the very least unique to African American life. No one else is questioning their their Americanness. Uh, Other than, you know, in the ways in the same way that African Americans are that black people do. Uh, And it's not that we are questioning ourselves, but we are ever trying to position ourselves uh, as full humans and position ourselves for safety and sometimes that that requires this dealing with the reality that at, at. in, in, in one instance, we are considered savage and detestable. In another instance, what we produce may very well be considered a delicacy.
1: Wow. Good stuff to think about. Um, let's move on here. Uh, you opened the section entitled Gumbo and African-American Cultural Expression by writing, quote, Gumbo's complexity embodies what food waste studies reveals about the multi-layered expressions of black cultural life, close quote. Can you paint this picture for us? So we're now going to get into more of the gumbo uh, parts, right?
2: Yeah. So like I said, so gumbo is made of these uh, these distinctive parts. Like you've got the base. So you've got the holy trinity, as they call it, of the, of the vegetables, which is the celery the onion and the bell pepper.
1: And they really call it um, they really call it that, the Holy Trinity.
2: It's a holy trinity of, of vegetables. Okay. Yes. Um and then you've you've got your stock, which uh some folks make fresh. I make my own stock. I usually uh take the carcass of the Thanksgiving turkey, uh clean it out, uh clean off the meat on Thanksgiving Day, bag it, freeze it until I'm ready to use it. And then I make a stock from that as the base of my gumbo. And so I start that the day before I even start making the gumbo. Uh, and you've got the other ingredients that you're going to put in your gumbo. I do a chicken and andouille sausage gumbo. I like to get my sausage from uh, A Bears in Houston or, or uh, 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 out of uh, a place called Brobridge, Louisiana. Um, and Sometimes I'll add shrimp, um, but that's as far as I go. And others will add uh, uh, crawfish. They will add crab. They might add oysters. Uh, You know, so many things can go into it. But none of that is gumbo unless you've got uh, the roux, R-O-U-X, the roux, which you have to painstakingly make. Um, It's oil. It's butter. It's flour. And it is stirred over a period of anywhere from 25 to 45 minutes to get just right. And that becomes the kind of thickening agent uh, of the gumbo that makes it distinctive from uh, from other uh, uh, big pot dishes like uh, soups or stews. And so that complexity uh, is a lot of work and a lot of love goes into it. And a lot of pride goes into it, uh, but that that complexity is beautiful because of all of the diversity that is in that pot. And you know, when I think about any idea of of d- diversity and equity uh, beyond diversity, I think about gumbo often because, again, we can pick out the distinct. Uh, uh, elements of it like chicken tastes like chicken sausage tastes like sausage shrimp tastes like shrimp and yet um when they're when they coalesce in this pot the whole thing tastes like one unit of flavor which is gumbo Mm. and so i think there's there's just a beauty to that odd pairing and complexity okay
1: now this uh i think is very related to what you just said you write that that gumbo is quote a brew of flavors, not a melting pot of blended flavors, which is, captures what you just said, right?
2: Okay. Yes, okay. yes, I, you know, I, I, my students, if, if any of them listen to this, they're laughing right now because they know what I'm about to say, that um, uh, we hear a lot of people um, who, uh, you know, good-natured folks who, who consider, uh, the best of the United States as being that of a melting pot. But when we think about the melting pot, and, and uh, uh, I'm dating myself, but there was this Schoolhouse Rock episode. I don't know if you remember Schoolhouse Absolutely. Rock. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't know the preamble were it not for really Schoolhouse <laughs> Rock. Uh, but there was one element uh, that talked about the beauty of this melting pot. And what you saw were, were people, Black, white, Asian, Latinx, all walking off this ramp into this pot (laughs) uh, and one person stirring the pot and they all bleed, melt into one element, one color, one culture. And that gets touted as the beauty of the United States. And and I actually reject that idea uh, because That idea gives way to ideas uh, where people can be well-meaning when they say it, but they will say stuff like, I don't see color. And uh, you actually do. And not only do you see it, but many people recoil when they see certain colors of folks. And so why not try to imagine ourselves as all one, and rather imagine the beauty of this country as being um, inextricably tied to its complexity. And so instead of the melting pot, I like to think of the gumbo pot, which I just described as all of these flavors coalescing. When you pick out one individually, that thing tastes like that thing, that chicken tastes like chicken. And yet when you um, dip your spoon in the bowl, the whole thing tastes like one thing, and the one thing t- tastes good to you because of all of the different things that you can also make out in it.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's, uh, that's, that's compelling. Derek, in the final portion of your chapter, you begin by explaining that using gumbo as a metaphor encourages a, quote, rethinking of religion in black life, close quote, and that gumbo becomes figuratively a, quote, conduit for a way of thinking about Black religion's ability to also bind a complex cultural community, close quote. Can you speak to that for a minute?
2: Yeah. Uh, In the same way I I described that that all those different elements of of gumbo uh, are bound together uh, as one beautiful thing, Uh, that's a similar way that I think about um, uh, the Black faith tradition that here you had, uh, you know, I think about uh, the efforts in South Carolina uh, of Denmark Vesey who tried to coordinate with um, um, others uh, uh, a, a, a large scale slave insurrection. And the ranks of his leaders included folks from the church, folks from the Gullah tradition, uh, folks who were uh, Orisha-based believing folks, uh, folks from, and they also were trying to make connections to uh, folks from Haiti who had e- experienced the overthrow of the French led by toussaint L'Overture. So you had this, com- this, this complex coming together of people Uh, with the express attempt to free black people, to allow them their fullest imagined capacity and humanity. And so when I think about what is happening uh, within this tradition, it's always been this complex form of religious expressions that come together uh, uh, in this wonderful yet sometimes odd way. Here I quote uh, uh, a historian of religion, Gayrod Wilmore, who said, uh, uh, Christianity amongst black folks has always been more or less Christian. And I think within that context, we see the ways in which the more or less becomes uh, a, a way to articulate a vibrancy and a robustness that comes through uh, the commingling of differences uh, and the complexity of, of, of different individuals and subjects uh, trying to create for themselves a life. Um, I'm, um, over my shoulder, right here, is a painting uh, of original painting. Uh, that was commissioned um, uh, by a wonderful artist uh, named uh, uh, Omari Booker. Uh, and it is of uh, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer. And Fannie Lou uh, was uh, connected to the church, connected to the freedom struggle, and connected to food. And she was connected to all three uh, intimately uh, and without reservation. And uh, uh, later in Fannie's uh, 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 kind of uh, one of the, phase, the post-civil rights phase or coming out of the civil rights phase into the next phase of her freedom-fighting life, Fannie uh, started a, a co-op, a food co-op, a massive food co-op in the Mississippi Delta, and a pig bank. Uh, and she was able to do it through her innovation and beer Dogged strength and brilliance, all of them coming together, in order to create opportunities for Black people and poor people in general in the Mississippi Delta to thrive. And she was able to do it through a network of farmers, ministers, church groups, uh, and pol- and and politicians and other leaders. And I think that's kind of the nature of what I'm trying to get at, that that what Black folk have always been able to do is cultivate uh, an innovative spirit that saw opportunity on the other side of their sufferings.
1: Thank you. You mentioned Fannie Lou Hamer. We are doing a podcast episode about her, um, and it will oh, be published wonderful. in a couple weeks. I'll make sure you you know about it. Uh, second to last question, and, and this you may not need to address, since I think you did a little bit there, but maybe you want to speak to it a little bit more. Uh, you write at the end of the chapter um, this, quote, "'Gumbo is not simply a dish but a unique experience. By the same token, some scholars argue that black folks do not simply attend church. They engage in a complex expression of faith all their own.'" Close quote. This seems important. It seems to have a lot of stuff packed in there. Is there anything you want to say, uh, elaborate on a little bit here at the end about, about that?
2: Yeah, it, it, it is a, an experience in and of itself. And it is, it is, it is a complex experience that it could be nuanced from worship house or house of worship to house of worship. Um, but, uh, that question makes me think of a, a experience that I had with a few friends recently. Uh, and we were joking. And I, I said, you know, um, you know you're in a Baptist church. We, we were kind of like doing kind of one of those, you know you're in a Baptist church when? And you know, someone would say something, someone else would say something. And, and I said, I didn't say anything. I just started singing. I said, well, I know the Lord, he heard my cry. and every person there knew what to say next and and what to sing next. And I'm not going to go further into it, but someone listening to this right now is singing in their mind uh, what they would hear in their own churches. And and oftentimes the deacons would start off service in that way. And so it's a a unique experience, not so much because of... uh, the conventions of it, but it's, it's, it's a unique experience that different people from different, uh, uh, church experiences could connect with, but also unique in that there's nuance from house of worship to house of worship. And so I think for me, in order to understand black religion in its fullest extent, we understand it Um, by way of what my advisor Anthony Penn uh, uh, called this quest for complex subjectivity, that we don't know what the the subjectivity is, we don't know what it looks like in its most complex form, but that what Black religion ultimately is in terms of its nature is a quest for it, is a quest for the full complexity of one's subjectivity to be exercised in whatever form it takes, and religion gives us A conduit to do that
1: okay thank you well said as we conclude Derek do you want to share any lessons or takeaways from the book either in terms or the chapter or your forthcoming book either in terms of important historical transformations you are charting or in terms of simply helping us better understand our present moment
2: yeah, I'm glad you ended with the present moment. The last chapter of, of the book that I'm writing now uh, really tries to take, uh, take seriously the ways in which history has created space for a better understanding of the present moment. And so I'll end it uh, this way. I called my grandmother uh, well in that chapter, which is uh, a chapter that I call the hunger game, I don't know if I'll be able to still use the name I didn't say hunger games right. but hunger uh, a hunger game uh, where i'm I'm um, somewhat critiquing well-meaning social justice or, or food justice workers who will go into communities and say, hey this this black community, needs a, just needs more com- community gardens and black folks just need to eat more kale. Um, and, you know, I, 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 it reminds me of conversations that I've had with uh, someone I mentioned earlier, Psyche williams forson who's doing this work around um, folk not yucking my yum, right? Don't yuck what has been for me, a, a or for a community, uh, a traditional need uh, as, It relates to their uh, culinary cultures. And so it reminded me of a conversation I had with my grandmother a few years back where I called her and I said, you know what, I just made some kale and it is good. And it's a shame that uh, white folk been keeping kale from black folk all these years. Now, I said that fully tongue firmly planted in cheek. And I expected my grandmother to laugh, but she didn't. In fact, she got quiet. And I said, Ma, what, Mama Dean, which is what we call her, I said, I was joking. Why didn't you laugh? She said, I'm disappointed. I said, well, why are you disappointed? She said, well, you've been eating kale all your life. I said, no, I haven't. She said, yes, I used to grow kale in the backyard. I said, no, you didn't. You see you now in your eighties and now you you're getting it all wrong. In the backyard, you grew mustards and you grew collards and the woman on the other side of the fence grew turnips and you all would swap. And that's what your backyard included. And she said, see, now you're showing what you don't know. She said, because, because between my collards and my mustard greens, I grew a little patch of kale. Because for us back then, kale wasn't this, you know, people weren't making a big, big deal out of kale. Kale for me was a supplemental green. It's what I would use to augment taste or something I would use to make fuller whatever greens I was making. So she said, sorry to tell you, but you need to know your history better because you've been eating kale all your life. And that got me to thinking, if I didn't know my own history, what else don't others know? And so what I'm hoping to do with this book is shed at least a little bit of light that uh, foregrounds these traditions that are culinary and religious all at the same time that are carried from the antebellum period all the way through contemporary times that do a very serious work in and through the black community or Black communities writ large, but ultimately always come back to traditional forms and complex expressions of one's humanity.
1: Thank you, Derek, for that last word. We have been talking with Derek Hicks, Associate Professor of Religion and Culture at Wake Forest University's Divinity School, author of the chapter, An Unusual Feast, Gumbo and the Complex Brew of Black Religion in the book Religion, Food, and Eating in North America. Here at the conclusion of this episode, we trust that listeners understand more about what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion and have a deeper appreciation of religious freedom as a governing principle in the United States, seeing to its protection as an indispensable part of the fragile American experiment in self-government. I would like to remind our listeners to go to storyofamericanreligion.org and navigate to the sign-up tab to register for future podcast notifications. Derek, thank you so very much for being with us and for doing the really hard work of writing a book that helps us all understand America better. It's been super enlightening, and I hope you've enjoyed the time with us as well.
2: Chris, it's been wonderful. It's been an honor to be here. Thank you so much.
0: The podcast series Religion in the American Experience is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes are released each Monday on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website www.storyofamericanreligion.org under the sign-up tab.